And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Frommer. And I'm Pauline Frommer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And we would love to have you be part of the conversation. A lot of the guests you hear on the show, email me at frommertravelshow at yahoo.com. But even if you don't want to, you know, flaunt it on radio, we would love to be of help to you. And we can do that in several ways. Of course, we have a series of important guidebooks that we spend a lot of time putting together. We have Fromers.com, which is our website. We're proud to say we get three million people visiting it every month. And we have lots of social media channels where we try and surface important issues interesting items for travelers. So if you're on Facebook, if you're on Pinterest, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, do look for us. Just look for the name Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, and please follow that. Now, on Fromers.com, for the last three years, I have spent the last month of the year interviewing people from all over the travel industry to write articles about what the travel trends are, because the trends often shape our vacations. And I've realized in looking back at three years worth of columns, one of the things I keep writing about is how it's the people who are traveling who are changing. We're seeing different types of of travelers. So it's not just the industry, it's what travelers are bringing to it. Yeah, that's a that's a very novel development, Pauline, that I've never seen it properly expressed in any other format. Well, what we're seeing is a lot of different new types of travelers. So one of the types that I discovered a couple of years ago, which may not be that new, but really for the first time the travel industry is sitting up and paying attention. We are seeing a lot more solo travelers. And for anybody who's tried to travel solo, they find that they get, they used to get many more roadblocks from the travel industry. Say you're a solo traveler, you want to take a cruise. In the past, you would be hit with a walloping singles supplement. That's because the cruise ship makes more money if they could squeeze two people in that room rather than one. Uh, And so you would have to pay for not sharing a room. Then a couple of years ago, Norwegian Cruise Lines uh, had an inspiration and they created solo cabins. But they did them in a really, really smart way. They didn't just put solo cabins all around the the ship, they thought, well, maybe solo travelers will want to meet other solos. And so they created groupings of solo cabins for which you did not have to pay the dreaded single supplement. And they were grouped together around a lounge so that these solo travelers could meet one another. This has been so wildly popular that now pretty much every single new ship that's built has solo cabins. Um, But we're not just seeing these types of help for solo travelers in the cruising field. 
a lot of tour operators now are also waiving their single supplement. Uh, So on many trips, such big organizations as Intrepid Travel, which is the largest tour operator in the world, Globus, Grand Circle, and a number of others are saying, okay, if you want to come alone, you won't have to pay the single supplement, and you won't even have to accept a stranger as a roommate. We will simply waive that fee. Um, so that's been a big, big change in the travel industry. It means that solos who want to travel in groups no longer have to pay through the nose. Interestingly, there's been a subset of solo travel that also is booming, and that is women who are traveling alone. I think more women are traveling alone than used to be because of social media. There's a lot of fear in being a a female solo traveler. You know, there are safety issues that women face that men don't to a certain, to a large extent. And seeing your fellow women on Facebook, on Pinterest, on wherever, Seeing their adventures, seeing that they're able to do this safely has created a boom for women just hitting the road and doing it on their own. Once again, the um, uh, travel industry has been uh, trying to hone in on this. And so we're seeing some of the major companies uh, such as REI, you may know REI as a purveyor of uh, wilderness goods. So if you want to get pants that zip off into shorts or if you want to get a tent, you go to REI. But in the last couple of years, REI has become a major seller of wilderness tours. And now they have specific tours just for women travelers who want to travel alone. Now, the key to REI is, this is this has nothing to do with trends, but REI, I think, charges like $29 a year, something like that, for a membership. And you with that membership, you get discounts on their travel clothing, on their tents, on their camping gear. But you also get a whopping discount on their tours. For just so for just $29, you can get hundreds of dollars off one of their tours, whether it's a women-only tour or a regular tour. So that's a, a bit of a side step. But REI is great for women travelers. Uh, there's also now new uh, uh, female solo tours from uh, uh, Austin Adventures from why and then there are certain companies that are just for women that don't have mixed groups including damesley wild women expeditions there's a whole bunch of them um i know you dad must have talked to women who have gone out solo is this something that you've seen change over the years this is a totally new development and it's a wonderful development that also has its counterpart politically where women have become so much more important to the election of various uh, officials and the like yeah but now it's it's returned to the travel industry and i say I say hurrah. Yes. <laughs> hurrah for that. And I have to wonder if a lot of these solo travelers are traveling with their pets. This is something <laughs> I saw for the first time this year. And there's always been a special website set up for people who want to travel with their pets. <laughs> the interesting thing that's happening now is the big names, not the specialists, are getting into this because more and more and more travelers 
want to bring Fido along. And I say Fido because it's not usually, I think it would be torture to bring a cat. I know my cats would freak out if I tried to bring them anywhere. Uh, but dogs are easy to travel with. They never complain about the quality of their hotel. And more and more hotels are accepting them because they're finding if they don't accept dogs, then they're going to lose that business. Uh, and in fact, this has become very big for rental operations to the extent that Booking.com now has a little tab that you can check off for both the hotels that they place you into as well as the rental apartments, whether those will accept dogs. Uh, so that's another new type of traveler. We're also seeing travelers who are being called the Yold. Y-O-L-D. Do you know what that stands for? I've never for? heard of that before, Pauline. What, what, what is Yold? Y-O-L-D. The Young Old. I spoke <laughs> with a bunch of adventure tour operators, people who take people on climbing expeditions and canoeing trips and kayaking trips, things that require a high level of physical exertion. And all of them told me that they used to see their, their trips kind of top out at people 50, 55. That was a couple of years ago. But now so many older people are staying in such good shape that, that they're hosting people in their 60s, in their 70s, even in their early 80s. Um, and as a corollary to this, I'm not sure if this is quite a corollary, but we're seeing a different de a definition of family travelers. Family travel used to mean two adults with two children who were in their family. Nowadays, you have so many millennials moving back home to live with mom and dad. Bizarrely enough, they want to travel with us too. So you're seeing new family travel trips from such companies as Backroads and um, uh, Butterfield and Robinson and other companies that they're, they're created for families, but they're defining families as two older adults and two people in their 20s or one person in their 20s or three people in their 20s. The, this is a new... I think it's kind of lovely. That might be because my children are 17 and 21, and I don't want to stop traveling with them. But this has become a major trend in the travel industry. Another type of traveler, vegans. There are simply more vegans out there. And so now we're seeing new tour companies popping up and restaurants that cater to travelers and other uh, items in the travel industry that are being created to try and serve this growing number of travelers. In fact, I was reading that vegan as a word, as a Google search, has exploded. They're getting 10 times as many searches for the word vegan as they did just a couple of years ago. So hooray for all these new types of travelers. They're, they're forcing the travel industry to do to innovate. And we have to take we have a break. To get, we have to take a break. Of we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. 
On the line, we have Elizabeth Heath. We're so happy to have her on because we work quite closely with Liz. She is one of the authors of Fromer's Italy and one of the authors of Fromer's Rome, Florence, and Venice 2020. In fact, both of those books we update every year. Hey, Liz, nice to speak with you. You too. Thanks for having me. So if people want to go to Fromers.com, our website, you recently wrote a piece on there's a whole slew of regulations that are being directed at tourists at their misbehavior. Uh, What are some of those regulations? Well, I say some of the better known ones are that... um, or the more notorious ones, put it that way, (laughs) are that you can no longer eat, drink, or sit on the Spanish steps in Rome. Wow. And, of course, the Spanish steps are this great broad staircase, you know, monumental staircase where it's actually quite lovely to sit and gaze on the city, particularly in the springtime when all the, you know, potted azaleas are all in bloom and everything else. But what's happened is that, you know, too many gelato cups, pizza boxes, plastic bottles, people blocking the stairs, and, you know, I guess yeah. was a few bad apples ruining it for everybody, but they've banned these these uh, these activities. Do they have the signs steps. saying that? I mean, how would a tourist who hadn't heard this interview know that these laws exist? There are um, police there. They're you know, some kind of a, of a local authority that uh, the decency, the decency cops who um, kind of just are shushing people along for now. There's always the threat of a fine ah. um, for this, for these things. But as as far as I have heard, unless it's just just completely egregious behavior, no one has been fined for not knowing that they're not supposed to sit down and eat their gelato on the Spanish steps. Well, that's good. So we have the Spanish steps in Rome. What's happening mm-hmm. in other parts of Italy? Um, in Venice, well, I mean, these, these things in Venice are, these are not uh, things that should come as a, too big of a surprise. You can't uh, swim in the canals. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should you. You know, there was a, a movie with Catherine Hepburn in which she had to fall into one of the canals. And she, they oh. tr- and they tried to uh, sanitize it. But she got as some kind of virus or some kind of problem that lasted her whole life from that movie uh, uh, shoot. Anyway. Oh yeah, it's, it's, that's quite easy to believe. Yeah, so dirty water. So don't <laughs> um, don't swim in the canals. As of right now, so you're not supposed to swim in the canals. You're not supposed to dangle your feet into the canals, um, and you're also not allowed to sit on the stoops of buildings, on bridges, on stairways. Uh, sit plop down in a piazza, like huh. a, a, the beautiful Piazza San Marco. Um, that unless it's on a public bench, or a park. And of course, there are, these are virtually non-existent in Venice. Huh. So basically it means no public sitting and eating and drinking. Unless you uh, are at a restaurant or an outdoor cafe, obviously. Outdoor cafe or restaurant. Right. Yeah. Wow. But again, as, as, a, as a Venetian, you know, you open your door and find four or five people sitting on your front step. Yeah. Eating their slices of pizza. You can kind of understand. I guess so. Where yeah. the... Uh, where the objections come to, and also just the litter that people are leaving leaving behind, and that's that's a big uh, that's a big uh, motivation behind behind these rules too, is that people just leave behind so much litter. What about Florence? Anything new there? 
Same things, kind of the same things in Florence. Um, there are a handful of streets in Florence where there are several street food type vendors. You know, takeaway places uh, for sandwiches and other um, other like typical Florentine uh, right. handheld food. And you can no longer walk down these streets while eating. Huh. Not only can you not sit anywhere or lean against a wall and eat, you cannot be walking down the street and eating. And this is, again, to reduce crowding on the streets, to reduce uh, litter. Right. And it's also to encourage people to go back into restaurants in Venice. In, ah, interesting. In Florence as well. We are speaking with so. Elizabeth Heath, who is one of the authors of Fromer's Italy, as well as Fromer's Rome, Florence, Venice 2020. And Liz, you write Rome for us, and I'm often asked <laughs> for advice for a first-timer going to Rome, obviously they want to see the Vatican, they want to see the Roman Forum. What is the one thing that should be on the list for travelers to Rome that they often miss? Who? <laughs> stumped you. I've stumped um, you. Or, or maybe is there, should they be getting advanced tickets uh, to these places? I mean, what's the advice the, the for first time? The Colosseum and the Vatican, you absolutely want to have advanced tickets. There is, there's no reason not to have advanced tickets unless you have made no plans and you just wake up one morning and say, oh, let's go to the Colosseum today. Other than that, you're just making your life much more difficult than it needs to be by not buying your tickets in advance. There's a small surcharge for purchasing online, and I, that surcharge is, is worth 10 times the amount of grief that it saves. Why? What would um, happen if you don't book in the half? Because do, they do timed entry now. So if you go today to buy tickets for the Coliseum for two weeks from now, you'll probably have a decent pick of time slots. So you could pick a morning time slot for the Colosseum, still have the rest of the day free to go to the Forum and the Palatine Hill, which are included near your Colosseum ticket anyway. Um, and then you're not waiting in line. You're right. not burning up hours of your precious vacation time waiting online, particularly in um, July and August when a line, uh, a line admission line under the hot sun is not a place you want to be. So you the could... same is true with the Vatican. Um, I was at the Vatican Museum this past weekend and there's actually, because of advanced ticket sales, there was really not too long of a line huh. uh, of a normal line to get in. So it's working. You know, it's just a, it's they finally got the systems down pat pretty well, and um, the long, long lines are hopefully you know a thing of the past. So you could show play. up at one of those places and find out it's morning now, but you can't get in into the afternoon because of time tickets, right? Or if you can get in at all, because oh. they do, the Coliseum, for example, sets aside a certain amount of same-day tickets, but if you get there by 11 o'clock in the morning, they might be gone. Mm, interesting. So, we are we speaking with Liz Heath, who is one of the authors of Fromer's Italy 2020 and Fromer's Rome, Florence, Venice 2020. We thank you so much, Liz, for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Your 
are listening to the travel show, but sometimes I feel like we're also the food show because there's nothing as popular as getting great meals and learning about local cuisines when you travel. To help us on that front, we have Nevin Martell, who just wrote a terrific article for the Washington Post called How to Dine Around the World Like a Food Writer. Welcome back to the Travel Show, Nevin. Thanks so much for having me, Pauline. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, so you were just in Tulum recently, and you posted pictures of it, uh, and a lot of your friends got very jealous, right? Yeah. You know, I feel bad because I go to places, I eat well, and of course I want to post pictures about it. And then I come back from my trips, or even on the trips, I'll get a message from a friend or hear from a friend like, I hate what you're doing to me on Instagram. You're making me jealous and you're making me hungry all at the same time. Right. And uh, it's what I do for a living. But, uh, you know, it does, you know, inspire a little bit of jealousy sometimes. Sure. But it inspires jealousy because you have Instagram perfect meals. You're constantly going to places that would make people jealous, which begs the question, how do you find those places? And can people who don't have your types of connections as a travel writer follow in your footsteps? Absolutely. You know, what I like to say is it definitely takes some time and sweat equity, but absolutely anyone can dine around the world like a food and travel writer. They just have to be willing to put in that time and sweat equity. Uh, for me, I do have a little bit of an edge. I've been writing for over 20 years, and I have a lot of industry connections. But a lot of the great places that I dine overseas or even around the country, I find because of the research that I do before I go on the trip. And that research starts two to three months before I leave for wow. anywhere um, because I like to be very thorough and pursue a lot of different avenues to find that information. And isn't that also because for the great restaurants of the world, you might need a reservation that far in advance? Absolutely. And if you need a reservation, you need to make that as soon as possible, as soon as you've made your plane ticket uh, purchase. And sometimes some people even make their reservation and then plan the trip based on when they can get into the restaurant they really want to go to. Now, that being said, there's a lot of places that I dine that, you know, are very humble or very approachable and don't need any kind of reservation. But um, for the places that are at the upper end of the spectrum that are super special, definitely make that reservation as soon as you can. So where do you start with your research? What's what's the first place you go? I start on social media. And uh, it's great because I have a large group of quote-unquote friends on Twitter. <laughs> I hope they didn't hear this interview. They're not going to trust you anymore. <laughs> no, some are, some are friends okay. in real life. Others are acquaintances. Right. Others are just people that follow me. Um, but the great thing is, is on, con- on Facebook, I'll start a conversation asking for great restaurants, running from, you know, in the case of Tulum, you know, humble roadside taco stands up to, you know, high-end restaurants. Um, I'll ask for people for interesting culinary-related experiences like cooking schools, or um, I took a great trip into the jungle uh, with a Mayan uh, who showed me how they harvested the the sap that is used to make the original chewing gum. Um, And that was something that came out of a conversation that I had on Facebook. Wow. Uh, On on Twitter, again, I'll just kind of put out a general call Uh to this place. Where do you recommend? And on Instagram, it's a little bit more proactive in the sense that I'll look at a location I'll start looking at the restaurants that people are recommending. And then I'll start doing deep dives into the influencers, food writers, travel writers 
who have been to that destination and see where, where they've been that looks really good or that looks like it could be really interesting. We're speaking so, with, uh, we are speaking with Nevin Martell, who wrote a terrific article called How to Dine Around the World Like a Food Writer. Don't you have to be a little careful with some of the influencers, though? I mean, a lot of those folks are dining where they're getting a free meal. Absolutely. And so what I do is, from the very moment I start thinking about where I'm going for a trip, I keep a running list of all the recommendations that either I get or that uh, I decide on by my own research. And I keep a tally bait finding out, like, say, somebody says it once, somebody says it again, and then I'll go through the list at the end and say, okay, six people, you know, a newspaper writer, uh, an established travel writer, maybe an influencer, maybe just a couple of tourists who Mm. posted great pictures on Instagram, all recommended this place, and I'll say, okay, that's worth it. If I go back through my list and I see that just, you know, an influencer has recommended, say, a hotel restaurant, I'll say, well, you know, they probably got that for free. I can probably skip it, Um, which is not to say that all hotel restaurants are bad or that all influences are bad, but you're right. You do really have to watch where your information is coming from and making sure that it's coming from a place, uh, a valid place. Especially for really high-end restaurants. You make, I thought, a very valid point about those. Why, why do you have to be even more careful Take who, whose advice you're taking for those? Absolutely. You know, I find that Yelp and TripAdvisor especially uh, can be very helpful to find smaller places that are out of the way and maybe off the radar of uh, food and travel writers and influencers. So that's a great place for those types of restaurants. But for high-end restaurants, I don't like to look at those types of review sites because, you know, dining out at that level takes a a certain budget and a certain lifestyle. And if you only get to dine out at a, you know, a Michelin star or that type of restaurant once every year or so, your expectations are off the charts and also your understanding probably of the minutiae of right. that experience are probably not going to be as good as somebody who dines at that type of restaurant all the time. And so I don't want to go to TripAdvisor to find out what you think of the French Laundry because sure. I have a lot of other much more experienced diners who I can look to for and that type of recommendation. I have to thank you. In your article, you do mention that you do look at travel guides. Absolutely. Um, I do read travel guides every time I go because um, these are people that have spent a lot of time in, in a single place or a single country, and um, they've done their best to get a great overview yeah. of that place or country. And uh, With our guides, they're embedded there. All our, all our journalists live in the destination. Yeah, and so, I mean, that, you know, people think of guides as like old school or something, and I think of them as Bibles. Ah, and bless so, you. Well, we're going to have to end on that note. Nevin, it's been a delight speaking with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, and on the line we have Rachel Opperman. She is the PR coordinator for Estes Park. Uh, welcome to the Travel Show, Rachel. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So for people who don't know where Estes Park is, can you give us a little geography lesson? Sure. We are about 90 minutes northwest of Denver, Colorado, at the base of Rocky Mountain National Park. 
And you guys are a major ski destination, but one without ski lifts. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, although I'd say up and coming. Up and coming. Yeah. Well, I met you uh, recently at one of the media events surrounding the New York Times travel show. And you kind of blew my mind because you introduced me when we spoke to a new type of skiing, one that can be done uh, when there are no lifts. Um, it's Is it called skin skiing? Is that correct? Um. There are a couple variations, and what we were discussing is backcountry skiing and splitboarding. And splitboarding. they're done using skin. Right, okay. Because yeah. skin skiing sounds like nudist skiing, and we're not talking about that. That would be yeah. too cold. You can um, do that definitely, but it would be very cold. <laughs> so tell our listeners what splitboards are, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Estes Park. Sure. Um, split boarding is basically backcountry snowboarding. And the way you achieve that is you have a special snowboard that splits into two halves down the middle. And you put skins on the bottom, uh, clip into them like you would skis. So you're basically using them as skis. Um, and then you use a cross-country ski-like motion to go up the side of the mountain. And the skins prevent you from going backwards. Wow. So, yeah, and so once you get to the top, then you take the skins off, you latch the board back together, hook in your feet like a typical snowboard, and then snowboard down. How common, how common is this? I, I couldn't believe I, there was a type of skiing I had never heard of before. Yeah, it's rather new. Just in the last few years, I think it's gone more mainstream, um, and uh, it's becoming more and more mainstream in Estes Park as well. Sure. And well, and I would think it's quite a workout, right? I mean, to be climbing up these mountains in order to board down them. It is. It is. It's a cardio workout for sure. Um, I'd like to equate it as uh, similar to just hiking up, though. Uh, the skinning makes it relatively easy once you get used to the motion. Hmm. We're speaking with Rachel Opperman, who is the PR coordinator for Estes Park, Colorado, and we were talking about your ski opportunities because it's snowy for a long time in Estes Park, right? It is, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say we have more months of winter than we do of summer. So how, how, many, how many months a year can you ski there? I think that varies year by year. Sure. Um, last year was an early snow year. We got snow in October, and a lot of our locals were enthusiastically um, backcountry skiing in October. Other years, you have to wait until December, January. I'd say more typically, ski season starts in January and lasts through um, March and April. March and April, that's pretty long. That's not mm-hmm. bad at all. Yeah. And so beyond skiing, tell us what people go to Estes Park to do. Oh, yeah. Um, beyond skiing, there uh, in the winter, there's um, snowshoeing as well. If, if you're not into backcountry skiing, um, cross-country skiing, you can get around on um, in just uh, snow boots and micro spikes in the winter, too. Um, and then in the summer, which we're really known as a summer destination right now, um, you can do horseback riding, mountain biking, hiking, camping. We've got a lake that has stand-up paddleboarding. You can rent boats there. And it's a really 
um, all-inclusive outdoor adventure destination. And it's a destination with some fun festivals, one of which is is uh, dedicated to Bigfoot, right? It, it's thought that Bigfoot came from Estes Park? Yeah, in the mountains surrounding Estes Park, there are people who will tell you that the legend originated in our part of the world. Um, and, yeah. Uh, what, what happens at the festival? Do people dress up like him? Are they scared of him? Do they think he's a good guy? Yeah, the festival is dedicated to Bigfoot lore, and so there's a great mix of um, experts and believers and revelers, people who are just there to have fun. So experts, are they believers too? (laughs) Yeah, I think so, and they're actually scientists who have found scientific proof. Um, really? From will, what? Yeah. Who what university? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they give educational lectures. And, wow. Um, so the revelers attend those, and then everyone goes out and competes in obstacle courses where you wear Bigfoot slippers and big wheel races. And, of course, there's music and vendors and food, too. It's just an all-around really fun time. Well, it sounds great. When does that usually happen? It usually happens in April. This um, year, April 17th and 18th. Wow. Well, if you're interested in Bigfoot, if you want to see one of the most gorgeous mountainous regions in the United States, you want to go to Estes Park. Thank you so much, Rachel, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline. Welcome back to The Travel Show. We started today's hour by talking about different types of travelers uh, because we have articles on that subject on travel trends up on Fromers.com. Right now, we have a really terrific article up on ways to avoid sticker shocks from booking hotels. So I'm just going to give a couple of these tips because I think they're really useful. If you want to see the whole article, and you should because there'll be details there, uh, go to Fromers.com. One of the things people have to do now is find out exactly Exactly what the hotel's cancellation policy is. A lot of travelers are finding really good rates online, booking them, but not re- realizing that they have draconian cancellation fees with these hotel rates. The really low ones you have to pay for in advance and you can't cancel. So be sure you know what kind of rate you're getting, otherwise you could be stuck. Uh, You may end up having to pay when you you thought, oh yeah, it's a hotel room, I can just cancel it. In addition to the cancellation policies of hotels, you also have to determine whether and to what extent the hotel charges a so-called resort fee. I I hesitated when I used those words because they they, to me are are just horrible uh, statements and it's a horrible development of the uh, travel industry, the hotel industry, rather, to charge hotel fees of which you are never properly apprised before you commit yourself to a hotel booking. Yes, and sometimes they're called facility fees. Sometimes they're called location fees. I've heard them called climate change fees. I mean, they they have all of these crazy (laughs) names for charging you extra. Um, So, 
Sometimes there also are incidental charges that aren't covered、uh, by these fees. So you you have to make sure that if you go and use the gym, you're allowed to use it rather than having to pay for that. Or I, I was just in L.A. where my parking cost fifty dollars a night. Fifty dollars. It was shocking. That was half the cost of the room just for my darn car, and I was staying near、uh, the Staples Center, so there was no parking that was anywhere cheaper, anywhere nearby.、Uh, so be sure that you you. Understand what those incidental fees will Pauline, cost you. Well, those parking fees in particular are charged by hotels in Las Vegas nowadays. Yes, and the entrepreneurs of Las Vegas are now starting to attribute a decline in bookings from California、mm. by Californians who do not want to pay parking fees and who have been horrified to drive to Las Vegas and to learn about such、yeah. fees as fifty dollars to park your and car. And the other. Thing you have to do is just common sense. Look closely at your hotel bill because sometimes mistakes are made, and so many people just want to get out of the hotel. They say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I don't need anything. I don't need anything." And we've heard from a lot of readers who have been overcharged by hotels simply because they did not dispute them the charges when they were at the desk. So do read your bill. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you for listening. To those who are traveling, a hearty bon voyage. Thank、you